Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, days. I'd, like good good I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will go down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? <laughs> You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Ken Early is back from a two-week-long phone party and played Linglis. Hi, Ken. <laughs> uh, yeah, how you doing, Owen? Good, yeah. Ken, uh, Kieran Murphy, I should say. Ken Murphy is also here. Hi, Ken. Hello there, uh, uh, Ian. What's the crack? It's early August, a time of optimism for all football supporters, for players, for managers. Either you're delighted with winning your preseason games or you're just brushing off the fact that you're losing them and still looking forward optimistically to the new season. The only man in the world not caught up in this euphoria is Stephen Gerrard. Stephen Gerrard's carefree days, can I put to you, on a football field, if there ever were any, are officially over. Nothing he can do now will ever make him happy. I've rarely seen a player as seemingly disgusted with scoring a penalty kick as he was last night against Manchester United. Yeah. Um, well, and he, he has Paul Scholes telling me he's been a failure. <laughs> he's, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, a lot of the things that he said, over the summer, you know, around the world, time of the World Cup and that, were just really sad. I mean, he was just, he just seemed, he was soaked in sadness. I mean, I remember him saying at some point, you know, I've got all the young players together and I've told them that if we fail at this World Cup, it's going to be a really long, miserable summer for them. It's important that everybody understands how serious this is. And you think, why are you telling them that? Why, you're the captain, why are you gathering together your young players to say, if we fail, it's going to be a long, miserable summer. You must understand how long and miserable it's going to be if we fail in this world. What if we succeed, Stephen? Don't worry about that. Yeah. If we fail, it's going to be miserable. If we succeed, you've got nothing to worry about. If we fail. <laughs> it's like he, he writes in his autobiography about, about going up to take his penalty in the uh, Portugal-England World Cup quarterfinal. And he's visualising what, what's going to happen if, when he misses. And he misses. And you think, how can you not have worked this out yet? You're 26. You know, how can you not... How can you seriously be walking up to take a penalty in a World Cup quarterfinal thinking, oh no, I can't believe it, I'm going to miss, this is terrible, what's going to happen, it's going to be so embarrassing when I miss this penalty, and then bang, you miss. I mean, it's just, I don't know, but he, he as you say, and he does seem to have become uh, careworn. He did that interview a couple of weeks back where he said, 
talking about the slip against Chelsea. You know, it was, it was, it was just, I wasn't even a mistake. I just slipped. Everybody slips in life. You some know, you some of them the slip stairs. on the stairs. Some slip and give away a definite league title for the team they've supported. And for me, for it, the slip for. came at a very important moment in a very important game on the pitch. I thought it, it kind of, it, it humanised the whole situation. No, it did. You know? it, 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 but when something's human, it's even more... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, slips happen all the time. And on very rare occasions, there are 80 million people watching. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, we all, we all, we all do slip on. He's absolutely right there. We'll chat about United and Liverpool today. We'll talk to John Bruin later on. And Andrew Mangan of Arsbog is going to be, I presume he'll be in good form because Arsenal have, they have now decided to buy players this summer. They've done it quite early in the year and seem to be fairly well set for the new, new season, I should say. It's time now for Ken Early's Report on Sport. <laughs> Well, and the biggest story today, I think maybe it's not that big a story, it's kind of a bit like the Steven Gerrard thing. I mean, he retired from international football a couple of weeks back and has been followed into retirement in international football by the dominant player in the international game over the last 10 years, Xavi, uh, who has said after 133 caps that, well, there's not going to be any more of them for uh, Spain. I'm grateful for all those years. Um, I still have the motivation of a kid, but unfortunately he is the body of a 34-year-old. Um, and uh, that's not quite enough to to get him there uh, anymore. So yeah, a player who more than any other player, uh, I think in the in in recent times has kind of redefined the game, uh, set the standards for uh, what a midfielder is supposed to be. You know, invented a, a way of playing which had never been seen before. Um, I'm just looking at some statistics there. Um, you know, over the last five seasons, I think in La Liga, he is more than three thousand more passes than the next um, than the next highest player in that list. I mean, which is more than obviously most players will make in a season, considerably more. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I suppose he's, he's saying it's all over. It's not all over for him yet at Barcelona. I mean, they wanted to get rid of him. It seemed, as, uh, you know, before the summer, uh, and maybe that's not going to happen now. Um, although I still wouldn't be surprised if he did end up uh, leaving there. Uh, but yeah, um, I suppose Owen, what I'm saying is a, a damn fine footballer. He has been a damn fine footballer. And there's no need to apologise in advance for how big or not the story is. I mean, we I think everyone accepts we're in early August here. Yeah. I mean, the, the stories generally aren't as spectacular as they might be. For example, if Manchester United beat Liverpool 3-1 in an actual Champions League final. Hmm. Yeah. There would or be if, probably more excitement about if, the football world today yeah. than there is after last Or if Xavi had retired from international football, say, on the 5th of June. Yeah. As opposed to the 5th of August. After, that would be a reasonably after big story. After a big team meeting. Or maybe we could just um, invent details to go with this story. Well, I don't know how journalistically sound that there's is. Been a huge, <laughs> there's been a huge uh, bustle between Xavi and Virginia Del Bosque. Oh, oh! This, sorry, we're we're going with this now. We're inventing stuff. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. What's happened there? Uh, well, essentially, it's it goes back to uh, the divide between Catalonia and Castile. Oh, I thought that was all gone. No, it, I'm afraid Owen, it reared its ugly head. The Spanish Civil War politics reared its ugly head, and last night split the Spain dressing room. <laughs> the fault lines have been exposed again. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm adopting some of the journalistic uh, practices that we see used in the uh, Spanish media. Um. I mean, their disregard for the truth in uh, during that 1936 to 39 period was uh, was remarked upon by contemporary critics, notably George Orwell. Um, there was a sort of a somewhat cavalier attitude to uh, the facts 
uh, displayed by the Spanish media at that time, which has con- uh, continued on to this day, uh, as we saw uh, during the... I mean, you're seeing these strange stories in Spain of one of the big newspapers having printed a, you know, like a diagram or a, a photograph showing an offside, which they've doctored to show that it wasn't offside. You know, this is they put this in. In, the, in what surely must be the full knowledge that in an age of social media and also the fact that the other side of the media is opposed to you and is you know scrutinizing your output for lies you're gonna you're gonna be exposed but they do it anyway and we saw this happen uh, a few days back when Manchester United played Real Madrid in this uh, game 109,000 people uh, a big red stadium which was doctored to appear white a big white stadium <laughs> Did you just see this? No. Oh, unbelievable. You know, literally, so it was just a big ocean of Real Madrid fans in wearing white and purple, you know, their white and purple shirts. Oh, dear. Instead of this, you know, the photograph which everybody else had seen, which was showing mainly Manchester United fans in the, in the stadium. This is apparently a done thing now. So, yeah, I am going to say there was a big bust up between Del Bosque and Xavi. Xavi said he'd never play for him again. He said he could stick it where the sun does. You can stick your World Cup and your two European Championships where the sun don't shine, and uh, that he may come back and play for the next coach once Vincenzo Del Bosco is gone. Well, I'm still predicting Spain to win the 2014 World Cup, Kim. I'm sticking yeah. by my prediction, despite the, the fact that Xavi is left here eve of tournament. It may yet it may yet be reported at some point that they have. Um, <laughs> we'll, wait, we'll wait and see. But uh, the biggest game uh, ever to take place in the United States, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if Sky's commentator last night hailed with Champions Cup or whatever it was called final between uh, Liverpool and Manchester United is that uh, it would have been silly if you had but I wouldn't be entirely surprised just given the general tenor of the commentary which was just this relentless hyping up uh, until at some point you're thinking this is, the, this is honestly the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you know I've never heard a commentator go on like this before it's as though he's uh, literally trying to wind us up Well you made the point in our first show today that the commentator certainly appeared to be commentating off tube. Yeah, there's well, he a, was. There's, I mean, there's a suggestion that maybe Sky didn't go all out on this one because no. they didn't, and they didn't bring him. They also had a punditry team in there that I would say wouldn't be their number A-team. one lineup. A presenter who nobody particularly recognises, and the two pundits were Trevor Francis and Alan Kerbishley. Yeah. If there was a what are you, what are, I'm uh, just saying. What are you saying about Trevor Francis? Well, no, nothing. I mean, he's, he's first million pound first player. First million pound player. <laughs> so. Uh, Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, yeah. I'm just saying, one European cup. In one way, Sky ad- were admirably understated in the, their personnel selection. Yeah. But yet they went. Maybe they compensated that by going over the top. In well, maybe podcasts. the guy was trying to work himself up into the kind of pitch of excitement because it is. It can be difficult if you're if you're there sitting in a, what's invariably a tiny uh, cubicle like space, looking at a TV screen to try and uh, get to that pitch of excitement that you want to be at when you're watching the biggest game in the history of uh, the world. Uh, so, so maybe he needed to sort of put himself into that frame of mind. I mean, there was a moment when uh, I think it was after about nine minutes, the camera suddenly showed uh, Luke Shaw. You could hear a substitution for Manchester United, number or whatever, Luke Shaw, and uh, replaces number. And uh, <laughs> you're thinking, who, who's gone off? And uh, the commentator goes, and a substitution for Manchester United after just nine minutes, Luke Shaw. And then there's this strangulated silence <laughs> because nobody knows who, who's, who's come off. And the commentator is just, there's this agonized silence that you can hear. It's really loud, you know? And everyone is waiting to see who it was. I'm thinking, mm, well, who was it? I mean, Ashley Young was playing in that position. Mm, was it Ashley Young? 
Uh, and the commentator was just at the point where he was maybe going to chance a guess. And then the, <laughs> then you suddenly saw Antonio Valencia. And Antonio Valencia! Antonio Valencia's <laughs> game is over! As he's walking away on the running track or whatever, or on the sideline. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I thought they, they dealt with it. And it's a difficult situation. You know, get into those kind of situations when you're on, oh, you know, looking Sounds at like you've got experience of this. Going, you know, from time to time, you know, you, you end up having to just but just being what they are you know in this post crash world um you know it's not uh it's not uh, 2006 anymore on mm -hmm. uh and sometimes uh even uh, the the most respected broadcasters have to uh make do and mend as it were i mean i remember my former employers uh i mean obviously we we're covering a lot of premier league games mostly I hate that in the stadium for the vast majority of times. For a couple of times, you know, when we had to uh, improvise, do a couple of tube, and um, I mean, things like full speed replays. I don't think should ever be allowed on the feed that they send <laughs> that they send to commentators <laughs> who are doing off tube because it can be very confusing. Uh, I remember one is in the Liverpool Arsenal. Alan Bradford's job. And he scored another. <laughs> exactly like the first. <laughs> Something very like that happened when, when David and Gog appeared to score two identical goals <laughs> for Liverpool against Arsenal. <laughs> in if one, it ain't broken, Gog. Mascherano again. Splits the defence. <laughs> and Gog again beats the Arsenal goalkeeper at his near post. Uh, that was just like the first goal. <laughs> uh, it didn't. It didn't go that far. We we able to. We were able to check ourselves. You know, there was a, there was a recognition of the awful thing that happened. And there was another time when, because uh, uh, sometimes the feed malfunctions. You know, it's fine if you're in this in your stadium. The worst thing go wrong is your equipment. Something goes wrong with your equipment, and you can't can't do it, or you need to fix the equipment before. But you know, the whole thing kind of goes down. You know, it's not. <laughs> you don't get this situation like where, say, the feed. The, the feeds, they, they give you, you know, the video feed that you're watching yeah. and then an audio feed over which your commentary is, you know, seamlessly laid. You know, it sounds as though you're, sounds as though you're there. <laughs> it sounds as though you're there for most people. They, they don't know the difference. Um, until that feed suddenly stops leaving only your disembodied voice, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very difficult thing to explain if you're at the stadium. You know, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> you can literally hear a pin drop here at Anfield. Uh, there is not a, literally not a sound in the stadium, as uh, you know. That's such as the hush, uh, which the away side have inflicted. I've got a twist on that one. Mm. Oh, sorry. You, you, you well, I remember on one yeah. of these occasions, if the the audio feed stopped working, quickly uh, another audio feed from another game was patched in. So it was I don't know Bolton Blackbird or something like this, you know, and it's. And they're and they're all heaving away there on the field, both the Blackbird players, and then there's suddenly this roar from the crowd, an unexplained roar, and the and the, the and it says, and they go. You can hear the stadium announcer, George Sefton, <laughs> at, at another Reebok Stadium, going, and they go for Liverpool, scored by number nine, Fernando Torres. Bear in mind, you're commentating on a both in Blackbird. So yeah, I mean, those kind of things happen from time to time. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to say, you know, sit here and, and point the finger at Sky Sports. So even, it, look, it could happen to the best. That's the twist that I was going to add, Ken. You've added it oh, yourself. Right. I, I may have been working on uh, that broadcast. Uh, and, and suddenly I wondered, why is there this big Liverpool, Liverpool chant going on at a Bolton Blackburn game? Doesn't make a huge amount of sense, but you've now, you've, you've solved the mystery for me. Uh, Brendan Rodgers oh, yeah. was in super Brendan Rodgers. Oh, me. really was. I think he's in wonderful form. 
I think the United States really suits him with its can-do culture. And uh, it's, it's positive. It's positivity. It's lack of cynicism, you might say. Now, it's lack of uh, uh, irony, people have said. I don't know if it's still necessarily like that. But uh, definitely there is more, this is maybe a more optimistic attitude that, that Americans like to have. Hey, you know, let's do this. As opposed to, who does this guy think he is? You know what I mean? Which is the attitude in some other places. Oh, you yeah. can see Brendan Rodgers making a career for himself as a life coach yeah. over in America. For Tom Cruise in the movie Magnolia. Um, something, something along those lines. But um, he, he was talking, and this is before the, the match last night, because he, he didn't really say too much after, me, after the match. He was saying, well, you know, yeah, we're working on our fitness. And before the match, he had a fantastic interview. Uh, talking about why, you know, obviously Louis van Gaal was, was uh, mooted as a possible director of football at Liverpool in, in 2012 when Rodgers was being uh, hired. But Rodgers didn't want to work with Louis van Gaal because, I think correctly, if van Gaal was the technical director, he would want things to be done a certain way. And I guess Rodgers could either do things that way or mm, probably face a situation where Louis van Gaal would be the new manager of Liverpool in a few months' time. Um, so Rogers didn't want that, and, and he managed to, to get out there. But he doesn't actually say, you know, I, I thought Van Gaal would, would quickly have sacked me and taken the job for himself. He says, uh, I always think the manager is the technical director. Uh, he's the man who oversees the football development of the club, and you should take on that responsibility when you're uh, the manager. I work best whenever I have clear communication lines with owners. My only failure, if you can call it that, well, it's when I had something in between at Reading, which uh, was when I had a director of football. One of my strengths is to communicate upwards. And if I can't do that, or if the message is watered down, then I don't work the same. For me, it was important when I came to the Liverpool, I didn't want those lines blocked. He does that. It's not that I can never work with one director of football, you know, just in case, you know, you know what? You don't necessarily in a few years' time... You know, Real Madrid are listening or, you know, whatever. But I felt it was important with the work that needed to be done, with the size of the job I took on, that I needed to have full responsibility in order to do that job. I think the owners backed that. And they certainly have. They've given him a new uh, contract, obviously, Brendan Rodgers, since that initial contract. Um, He talks a bit about Van Gaal, uh, where he talks about... uh, he's He's a very good manager... He'll look to make his mark. I'm very much into the tactics of the game, and I'm looking forward to it in that respect. Uh, he says, we played a variety of systems that worked well for us. Louis come in and adopted the 3-5-2. He obviously had success in the World Cup with that. He's looking to roll it out at Manchester United. So, yeah, it's not what you'd call two standard systems or two standard coaches. It's two coaches who are thinkers of the game. Would you think that Brendan Rodgers would be enthusiastic if... Uh the English media were to borrow something from the American media that he was talking to there and address him purely with the word coach. Coach, coach, coach Rogers, coach Rogers. Uh, I've got a question. Oh, he would love that. I, I think, think he would really, really enthusiastically buy into that. I think so. I mean, there was, I don't know if you read the, um, there, there was a recent uh, piece on the, the Guardian, which was actually from an old interview that Philippe Beauclair had done with Brendan Rogers in Blizzard magazine. Oh no, I saw people, I never got around to it, Ken, unfortunately. I did see people tweeting about it, alright. <laughs> uh, well, there was, there was. I remember a piece, um, I think it was Dion Fanning with Stephen Hunt in the Sunday Panther a little while ago, where Stephen Hunt was saying that when Rogers was at Reading, uh, he would uh, throw in, he, he was, when he was training the players at Reading, he would throw in uh, the odd Portuguese expression. Just to um, just to get the, uh, I, su- I suppose, 
message across that he used to work with Jose Mourinho? I'm not quite sure. One way or the other, uh, he'd throw in the odd Portuguese expression. In this interview, he actually peppers his discourse with quite a lot of Spanish phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a Spanish uh, journalist there, I think, with Filippo Clare. So there's, mm. you know, there's an attempt to, to you know, just get on the level or whatever. But it is, it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. I mean, uh, a thinker of the game, he's very good at communicating upwards has to face the challenge of communicating downwards to a considerably increased squad. Um, This is the most difficult thing in management, really. Um, When you've got too many players for too few positions, um, handling, keeping a a lid on, keeping all your ducks in a row, let's say, when, you know, some of your ducks are just going to have to sit sit this one out, uh, is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I think you were writing about this today, Kieran, in the Irish Times. In a different context. Uh, well, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that, that was basically it. The, this idea that you're, if you're picking a team and you have 15 positions on that team and you have 30 players, I'll quote you, God. If James Horn or Malachi O'Rourke or Jason Ryan or Mickey Hart is has 30 players at training and he picks the team for their upcoming match that night, he has just told half of the men in his charge that he does not rate them. Sorry, you're good enough, but you're not what I'm looking for right now. Now that's what Brendan Rodgers is going to have to do too. I think he's actually got 30 players at the moment. <laughs> and he's only got 11 places. So quite how this is going to um, pan out, I'm not sure. All right, that's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. I knew the place. Clough, that he calls me Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, we're, I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots of four matches. But that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Buff, pity calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now, that might, that might be, you know, aiming for utopia, and it might, be, might mean being a little bit stupid. But that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. Arsblog's Andrew Mangan has popped into studio. Andrew, how are you? I'm well, thanks. You? Well, pretty good, yeah. Well, it's the 5th of August, so, I mean, everybody's well because the season hasn't started yet. Yeah. <laughs> how are optimism levels yourself for Arsenal this year? High, I think, yeah. because they've actually done business early in the season or early in the summer, which hasn't been the case. Uh, and they've actually identified the key areas, I think, that they need to, to replace players. Obviously, Bakary Sanya, Lucas Fabianski left, so they bought a right back and a goalkeeper. They've added something in the forward line with Alexis Sanchez and also Callum Chambers, a bit out of the blue, but a, a player whose versatility, I think, is one that, that suits Arsene Wenger. Yeah, I want to get on to a bit of what that says about at the club at the moment and I know uh, Usmanov had some interesting things to say to say today in an interview but just uh, you're over in New York for um, a part of the, the pre-season competition how, how struck were you by the support for Arsenal over there? It was incredible really um, I think Premier League football in general has taken a big leap forward over there uh, whether it's reached a tipping point now where uh, you know so many people are interested that everybody is interested but mm. we did an event for the book that we released through Ars blog um, with the help of the New York uh, city supporters group over there and there was a pub on 14th street where we were there was an art exhibition there were all kinds of things going on with just thousands of arsenal fans right. and it was like being 
at a home game in, in a way, uh, the build up to a home game in the sense that, you know, the social elements of it, the people in the pubs and drinking and people leaping around and singing by 11 o'clock at night, it was quite messy. These are all Americans. Yeah, for the most part, these are all fans that have come from all over America, not just New York. Uh, we, we met people that had come all the way from the East Coast. Uh, there were people down from Canada, guys from Chicago, um, everywhere. Mm. Uh, and it's incredible to see it, you know. Arsene Wenger doesn't want to ever go there. He'd want, he would prefer to go to Austria. Yeah. Uh, Austria, a proper place for proper pre-season training. Sure. You know, with, without, uh, you know, long, uh, long-haul air travel and stupid crowds of fans uh, getting in everyone's way. Uh, it's obviously, we, we understand why the club would rather go to the United States and participate in a, um, in a tour like this. What do you think is, the, is actually the best thing for Arsenal to do? I think they probably have to find a balance, don't they? I mean, it was only a few years ago that they started doing these pre-season tours. Until then, they'd been in Austria. It was all about a training camp and, and keeping everything quite calm. And, you know, the surroundings were pretty much bucolic mountains and a, a lake, probably. Which I actually kind of think players would probably hate. Players would much rather go to New York. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I think the players were involved in a, a number of the events in um, in New York. There were appearances and signings, and they were doing basketball things with Thierry Henry, which I'm sure is a lot more fun than training once in the morning, once in the evening, and then sitting around somewhere where they don't even have TV. You Those know? camps are gone anyway, aren't they? I mean, that, that whole idea, Van Gaal brought it up as well, saying that, well, you know, we're going to have to sort this out for next year, and don't worry, you, you won't be seeing us back here anytime soon. <laughs> but of course you will be, because that's the way, it, that's the way it's gone. I mean, for f- strictly footballing purposes, of course, a manager would prefer to... Ideally, have the players just trading as you discussed there, but they have to buy into the corporate element. That's how they're all getting paid so much money. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, and and that's why they go to the United States. I mean, they seem to have, I mean, you know, it, ten or twelve years ago, that emphasis is very much on going to Asia, going to China, and the idea that this is going to make everyone incredibly rich. Now it's just the United States. I wonder why South America never gets mentioned, given that that's where all the best players come from. Have None of these English clubs ever considered the idea that maybe they might want to start getting to the heads of some of the players. But, but maybe there's, you know, the element with South America is that they've, they've got well-established teams with well-established support, whereas in uh, Asia, for example, another Arsenal over the last couple of years, they went to Vietnam, to China, to Japan, and made really big inroads there in terms of of, uh, of new supporters, whereas you're not going to get somebody who supports River Plate all of a sudden going, oh, well, Arsenal came, I think I'll support them. So I think that's where, that's where it is, what they would, uh, marketing people might call the underdeveloped markets. I mentioned Usmanov at the start, and he said, uh, I think this is uh, majority shareholder, is that how you describe No, no, no he's the, the minority. Minority shareholder, I should say. He says, I think we begin a new era for Arsenal where we win trophies. This is the most important for football. In my opinion, in line with the existing rules, the club has the correct decision-making process in place, including their selection policy, especially now when they have the means to buy the best players. This ties in with the, as you say, the policy of getting it all done, or most of it done quite early on. Mm. Uh, is this a, a concession or a confirmation that Wenger has had it right all along by the Arsenal high, high brass? I mean, I think they obviously had a long-term plan. That much is obvious. Um, Uzmanov, I think, is just sort of piped up. It's a bit fluffy and PR, the piece that, that was put out today, um, because when things are going badly, he was very much the first to stick his knife in. Mm. So now that things are going well, he doesn't really have anything much to say. So um, I, I think the way that Arsenal are spending money does indicate that they they were planning in the very long term, and it was frustrating and difficult at times, but now that they've got to this point, 
you know, everything looks kind of rosy. Is there a wonderful smug sense of righteousness then about uh, having done things the the right way, the decent no, way, through, you know, uh, through a sort of borrowing a lot of money from a bank as opposed to spending a lot of uh, some oligarchs' ill-gotten gains, that this is actually yeah, pretty much the, the most... Um, uh, dignified way a football club can go about its business and thanks to Arsene Wenger's foresight thanks to his patience thanks to his ability to, to endure suffering Arsenal, <laughs> Arsenal have got there in the end I don't know if you can call it dignified or if there's anything smug about it because you know I grew very frustrated at times with what was happening and, and the sense that even with the resources that Arsenal had as limited as they were they didn't necessarily use them in the best way so that was always a frustration but I think it was clear from the start that this was this was the plan that they had made and when they had built the new stadium and they signed these sponsorship deals which locked them in uh, at the time when they wanted to build uh, Emirates. So they signed up with Emirates and they signed up with Nike to 2014 um, to get cash up front to finance the stadium. I think they knew that they were going to be restricted. I don't think they could have foreseen the rise of the likes of uh, Abramovich and, and what happened at Manchester City when they made these plans. So um, I, I don't know if it's dignity, but they stuck with it when perhaps it would have been easy to to go the other way, yeah. so fair enough. They may have felt that their titles might still be there to be won yeah, until these other yeah. teams kind of came along. The, just on the, uh, I guess, the makeup of the squad, now four of members of the German World Cup squad are, are in there um, already. There would be five. Sorry, no, there would be, there are three. There, <laughs> there would be four if Sammy if, Kadir. If Kadir was to sign. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, it's something that Wenger's done before and there's still a lot of French players there and he has gone down the road of getting quite a lot of players from particular countries in be no harm if they're the world champions to get a couple more of them involved. Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's sometimes it's important to to get players of a certain nationality together. And the Germans seem like a really good influence at Arsenal. They're big characters. Podolsky and Mertesacker are uh, obviously very uh, popular in the dressing room. Um, and to have them there to bring in someone like Mesut Ozil, who's perhaps a little less... Uh, what's the word you might look? Life and soul of the party. Yeah, a little. Uh, yeah, he's he's a bit more reserved, a bit more shy, but he's got these two guys. I don't to, know if he's shy. Did you see his, his? He was tweeting some photos of himself during the. Where I don't know where he'd arrived, Miami or Los Angeles or somewhere. Right. And he he'd kind of tweeted a selfie. He's sitting there in a right. very expensive looking car with a very expensive looking pair of sunglasses, <laughs> making some type of uh, gesture to the camera. Right. He looked as though he was. Just plan to go and well, enjoy himself. He's a bit more ostentatious than I give him credit for, but you know, I just think in in general terms about his character, I think it was probably great for him to have Murdasacker, <coughs> excuse me, Murdasacker and Podolsky to to help ease him through. So um, whether he does that, I mean, there's a very big, uh, I won't say English, but British core there now with Wilshire, Ramsey, Oxley, Chamberlain, Gibbs, Chambers. So um, I'm not sure he's specifically looking for factions, yeah. but I don't think it hurts. When you talk about Wiltshire, uh, he has, he. I mean, I remember when he emerged. It's four years ago now, I guess that he he started four or five years ago that he started playing the Arsenal first team, mm. and uh, that amazing performance that he had against Barcelona when Arsenal beat Barcelona two one. I think it's three years ago now, and it's still probably the best game that he's ever had for Arsenal. Uh, and all that you see about him now is oh Jack Wiltshire, uh, smoking, drinking, apologising. Uh, Arsene Wenger now seems to have said something a little bit menacing sounding if you were Wilshire. Um, he said something along the lines of if you're three weeks, if you have to rest for three weeks now before you're fit, and then you're essentially if you're in and out and in and out of the team due to injury, you're finished in the modern game. 
and this has been the story of Wiltshire over the last couple of seasons. How, how do you interpret what's what's happening there? Is Wenger running out of patience with him? I don't think he's running out of patience, but I think he's definitely putting it up to him because there's clear potential and clear talent. Um, and I think it's time he, he started showing it on a more regular basis. I, I think last season he did quite well, considering he'd come off the back of essentially 18 months of injury without really playing on a regular basis. And I think last season was one that he really wanted to just play as, as many games as possible. I think he played 40-odd times. So um, despite uh, the injury towards the end of the campaign, um, he, he did pretty well overall, but he'll be looking for Wilshire to do more and take more responsibility. Do you think that he's still a player in, in he's trying to figure out what kind of a player he is? Yeah. Because he, the thing that annoys me about these, I think, I think we've actually talked about this before, annoys me about a lot of English players that nobody seems to want to be a playmaker in midfield. Nobody seems to want to be a guy who is behind the ball or like does the kind of things that you've seen Bastian Schweinsteiger, Tony Kroos do in the World Cup. Well, Cleverly likes to think he's that player as you know an, an example, and he says he gets criticised because <laughs> fans don't seem to recognise his playmaking abilities. Maybe I, I guess it may be that Cleverly slipped my mind. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I, 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 I. That is true. But his his entire point was the reason that I'm not appreciated is that English fans don't understand what I do. Yeah. I do I do what they do in Spain. This is the I cerebral things together. Yeah, so it's, I don't know. Maybe Wilshire realizes that understands he, the culture he's he's po- in. Possibly, but he, he seems to me to be a guy who who is ideally suited to playing like that. He's yeah. like he's got he's got great uh, touch. He's got great passing ability. He's got lovely technique. He can kind of beat a player. He's got no pace. What is he doing thinking that he's an attacking midfield player? Well, I mean, that's where he spent most of his youth and that's where he was very effective as a youth player and where he caught the eye. I think what the issue is now is that his best position for Arsenal is probably where Ramsey plays Mm. and where Ramsey plays when Ramsey plays, he's not going to... run like Ramsey. Ramsey's amazing in his ability to... Yeah, but I just mean in the way that Arsenal are set up where they play with one anchoring midfielder in Arteta or Flamini and then you've got uh, Ramsey ahead and then Ozil or Cazorla somewhere ahead of that in those three positions what suits him best is the one in the middle if Arsenal were to play perhaps with two deeper lying midfielders you could easily see Wilshire being part of that because he does like to tackle he likes to get stuck in his, his distribution is quite good so it depends what way Arsene Wenger sets out his team this season, but it's up to Wilshire to just produce when he's on the pitch and, and make it difficult for Wenger to leave him is out. He, sorry to keep rabbiting on about Wilshire, but is he? do you get the sense that he's still a popular player with Arsene Wenger? Because I think it's it's the case that in every club, if a, if a young player comes through and looks like being really good, everybody loves him, at least until he turns out to be a disappointment. Is, is Wilshire approaching that point? I think people are... Still behind him, obviously. Yeah, I think so. Um, and he is popular and people want to see him succeed. But they're also aware that now when you talk about the likes of uh, Kadira coming into Arsenal, that the competition for a place is is higher than it's ever been. So that's, again, as I keep saying, it's down to him to make it uh, make it a decision for Wenger. Is the pressure off now, Andrew, to an extent, with the trophy won last season? Can they just have a nice crack at the league now and be a bit more relaxed about it? Or does it work that way in modern football? I guess, in a way, it, it really does feel different this summer because of what happened in May and, and the FA Cup final that we're not going into a season where people are going, it's been 10 years since Arsenal won a trophy. And, and there is an associated pressure with that. And I think we even saw that in the semi-final and, and the final of the FA Cup, the way that the weight of expectation and pressure affected Arsenal's performances. So I think with with the the transfer business that they've done early, which shows a level of uh, ambition and desire that probably hasn't been there for a couple of years 
with players like Ramsey uh, going to kick on again. Um, some really exciting players in the team. I think, yeah, they can have a good crack at so it. So they're going to win the league? I don't. It's impossible to say right now. I think they need another player or two, to be honest. I think they need a centre half because Vermalen is going to go and. Uh, Mertesacker and Koscielny can't stay fit for the duration so uh, I think another centre half is important um, if they really want to have a go I was, to, I was hoping to whip you up into the pre-season excitement <laughs> and get you to predict the league title for you, you are obviously pretty confident for Malin's going to join Man United I don't know if it's Manchester United or somewhere else um, I, I'm pretty confident or, or I firmly believe he's going to go whether he goes to United or somewhere else I don't know I don't know what happened to him I mean I can't I still can't quite figure out what. It was. was there a particular moment in, in his Arsenal career that, that Wenger just said hang on yeah because he was because he was fantastic at first he, okay he, he would get caught quite a lot where he was on the halfway line when he needed to be on the edge of his own penalty area. Yeah. That did happen from time to time. And, and you know what? Over what made people overlook that was the amount of goals he cracked yeah. in from 30 yards. Yeah. Uh, and I liked him. I, I think the injury that he had, he was out for over a year with a really bad Achilles injury that took them ages to figure out what it was. Mm. Uh, and it was like some rare thing that happens to about three people on earth. Um, and after that, if there's a specific moment, it was the game against Tottenham at White Hart Lane, not last season, the season before, and he was abysmal. Arsenal's defending was abysmal. And Arsene Wenger dropped him. From that moment on, he never got a look back into the side, only when somebody was injured. And, and yeah, I think he just wants to go, and I think the club are prepared to let him if go. He, if he does go, do you see him as a sort of um, uh, a return gesture for Mikel Sylvester, or is he a player who... With you know maybe playing with two defenders, two central defenders in a, in a three at the back, Louis Van Gaal team can suddenly be uh, suddenly be a big asset for them. I wouldn't insult him to say it was anything like Sylvester, okay. to be honest. But you know, um, I think Arsenal can improve on him, and whether he improves United a great deal is really open to question. Andrew Mangan, Arsenal, great stuff as ever. Thanks for coming in. Cheers. He's a better player than Cooper, in my opinion. He's one of the greatest I've ever seen. Cooper's a two-trick pony. Oh, you no, can't, no, you can't say he's no. a two-trick pony. <laughs> In my opinion, Cooper's a two-trick pony. James O'Donnell is different, folks. He's just totally different. In my opinion, Cooper's a two-trick pony. Don't you say it's winning time when he goes out and, and wins them? Yeah. For 12 years. Yeah. I, I, want to, I want to remove myself from that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was the scandal of the GA summer so far. And if you haven't listened to our other show today, you'll hear Andrew McLaughlin and Carol Mannion talking Cullum Cooper. He also had Dave Hannigan on about the uh, lack of transparency in the, I was going to call it the fight against drugs and golf. I don't know how <laughs> strong that fight the is. The studied ignorance of, uh, golf, of drugs and golf. Andrew wouldn't go so far as to predict the league title for Arsenal. Ken, are Arsenal going to win the league? No. ESPN's John Broom was up late <laughs> last night watching Manchester United beat Liverpool and joins us now. John, the Louis van Gaal system, I've heard two schools of thought. One is that he's gone in, he's looked at the players and decided that, yep, 3-5-2, it works pretty well and this is how we're going to do it. The other is that actually he was bringing this in regardless and he's now going to find the players to suit what he wants to do because he probably does believe in the cult of van Gaal. Whatever it is, after last night's win against Liverpool, it seems to be working so far. Yeah, it does work, yeah. Yeah, um, I suppose that the thing you have to say about Van Hal is, is uh, his approach is not linear, um, which we have to go back to the previous manager whose approach was almost entirely linear. Um, so giving the players something to work with um, and the ability to use your imagination it certainly seems to work, but we're in pre-season as we know. I mean, the thing is, the way that they, they pass the ball around um, certainly having more players in midfield helps that. 
I think one of the problems with United over the last few years, even under Sir Alex Ferguson, was the fact that they were always only two men in midfield too often against certain opponents, and it didn't work for them. Um, and in certain young players, like, I mean, Tyler Blackett was a centre-half, uh, who seems to fit very well playing three at the back, as in, you know, was one of a defensive three. Uh, and players like, like Ashley Young, um, who, you know, 12 months ago was an absolute pariah, uh, has been able to reinvent himself. So Van Hal, I mean, he's been in the job, I think, three weeks now. I mean, it's only just over three weeks since the World Cup finished, isn't it? And, uh, you know, he's he's instilled something that looks certainly very promising for the next season. What do you think, though, of... I mean, I watched this game last night, John. Um, I, have, I have a couple of queries, really, about it. I mean, you mentioned Ashley Young there. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a general thing. It's not based solely on what happened last night. But the idea that Ashley Young, at this stage of his career, can reinvent himself as a wing-back seems a little bit optimistic to me. I mean, it, seems, it sounds as though at some point we're going to be hearing... Ashley Young's lack of um, defensive awareness exposed as, you know, he, the winger fails to, you know, know all the things that a defender who's been a defender all his life uh, knows and, and lets someone get away from it. I mean, it, it happened in the match last night. Uh, and I'm sure if he, could, if he keeps playing there, we're going to see it happen a lot more. Yeah, I mean, we, we always have to go back to this is a friendly played at less than Premier League pace. And certain managers or would would if, if Ashley Young is placed in that position in the Premier League would think, well, you've got to test him with the you know, maybe the long ball placed over his shoulder or something like that, which he, he isn't going to be used to dealing with. And uh we've seen many times, haven't we, over the years where players drop back into defence and can't really work offside and things like that. Um I think, you know, Ashley Young is twenty eight. Um I agree with you, it's a hell of a push to reinvent yourself in that way. However, um, that system does allow uh, players on the wing not to be so defensively minded. Um, I think it's interesting on the other flank, Luke Shaw, uh, who's a player bought as a left back, and that's certainly where England see him being the next player. Um, He's actually better suited, it would seem to be, as being a wing back than a left back. Um, once his fitness has worked on it, it has to be said. The captaincy issue is pretty interesting. Sometimes I think this can be overstated, but in terms of where Manchester United are and where Wayne Rooney fits into fits into the setup there, I mean, after the game last night, Van Hal said, today Rooney played 90 minutes for the first time. I'm always looking for opportunities to give players a captain's armband. He goes on to mention a couple of other guys who've captained, and he says, I think if you choose... When it's possible, you choose the English style. That is when it is possible. Uh, which seems, I don't know, is he laying the ground here for the announcement that Rooney will be captain? And maybe, is, if so, is that the right way to go about it, given that his relationship with Van Persie seems to be fairly bulletproof? Well, I think I think maybe one of the things is that um, continental managers, continental players, maybe not to the captaincy is quite as important as those of us uh, who follow the Premier League do. Um, I suppose one thing to say is that Wayne Rooney himself seems to place great importance in the captaincy. Um, he's made a fair, fair, a couple of sort of fairly shy statements, but they still seem to suggest that he would quite like it. Now, the Van Persie thing, Van Persie was obviously his World Cup captain. Um, Van Persie seems to be given 
quite special treatment by Van Gaal. Um, he's still to come back. He's not able to start the beginning of the season. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, this tour has taken place with Rooney at the centre of things and looking fit, um, looking fitter than he has done for some time, uh, fitter than he certainly did in preparation for the World Cup. Um, and yet we've got this Van Persie thing where he'll come back in. Now, Van Persie, towards the end of the World Cup, uh, aside from oddly in that third-place game, looked absolutely gone after the third game of the season, after the third game of the tournament. So uh, maybe Van Gaal knows that Van Persie is not a option who he can play every week, whereas he might think that Rooney could play almost every game. Um, but I, I do think that Van Gaal is someone who is a fairly secondary thing when he himself is so dominant, so domineering over the whole setup himself. Yeah, speaking of that, John, actually, um, I mean, it's, it seems like a long time ago now that in the last couple of weeks of the season, there was there were these uh, images of all the guys, all the class of 92 guys sitting there uh, on the bench at Old Trafford, uh, you know, walking up the side on, uh, at Old Trafford together. And it really looked as though this... Um, these guys were poised to take over the club. It hasn't happened. Uh, obviously, they've still got, you know, Giggs has got a, an important job as assistant manager. Neville has a, a job in the coaching staff. Bud has a job in the coaching staff. Skulls, um, who, who may be the most popular of that bunch of players among the supporters, has um, has gone to join BT Sport. Uh, do you think there's, there's maybe a little bit of frustration among those guys that the, that the hoped-for takeover uh, didn't uh, come to pass? Well, I think that there, there might be some frustration, but it's it wasn't realistic in any sense, was it? I mean, you know, Ryan Giggs is a has no experience of management. Uh, his only coaching experience was as assistant to David Moyes, with whom he didn't get on. Um, Nicky Butt has actually more extensive um, experience, having done reserve team football. Uh, I, I was interested to note that Van Hal said that Van Persie was being put through his paces by Nicky Butt. Um, back in Manchester, so um, I think I think the thing is with that it, it was such a dream, wasn't it, to have you know the, the, those lads in charge, you know, most of whom were not even forty years old. But Manchester United is a you know a, a very big club. Uh, it's you know the biggest club in the world, as they would proclaim it themselves. Um, having experiments with managers as, as rookies really wasn't ever going to work. Um, so I would be rather. I would. I mean, I suppose the thing is, the the, the thing to look for is a relationship between Giggs and Van Gaal. Now, Giggs, I presume, and it, it all evidence points towards this, sees himself as something of a Mr. Manchester United, um, and didn't take too kindly last season to being pushed into the shadows. How he reacts to that with Van Gaal's, well, it's going to be a brusque approach to him. Uh, that, that's that's an interesting plot line to look through this season. Um, I do think eventually that in in this, the way that say Liverpool had to with Kenny Dalglish and Newcastle messed about with uh, with Alan Shearer, that Giggs will one day be Manchester United's manager. But how long that takes, uh, I suppose, is the big question. John, what do you make of the challenge facing Brendan Rodgers now? The comparisons are already being made with the Spurs last year. They sell their best player, get a load of money for him and decide that they have to buy just loads and loads of players, maybe rather than concentrating on one or two high-profile 
replacements. They've now got, in fairness, their starting team yesterday looked quite familiar, but there's a lot of guys that they still have to integrate into their squad. Um, is, is this the right or wrong approach? Do we know yet? Well, I, I suppose the, the biggest issue, isn't it, that they're replacing a player who was far and away the best player by, by a long way, which is it's very difficult not to compare that to to what happens to Spurs. Now, the thing is, Liverpool were at a higher level uh, and they have players like Raheem Sterling and Daniel Sturridge who certainly looked last season as if they were capable of, uh, if not carrying the team, as if you know making the team strong. Um, I think the issue is um, the failure to get Remy rather than anything else. Now, not 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 Lewick Remy himself as a player. The fact the, the fact that they haven't got a, a decent striker um, now. Ricky Lambert almost seemed uh, some kind of sentimental purchase. Now, I, I, I like Ricky Lambert as as a player, as as an entity. Uh, it's a great story, but I don't I don't see where he can fit in for Liverpool uh, unless he's a, some kind of super sub. Um, you've got players that they've signed like Emre Khan, who looks like a you know a very strong player, but he's twenty years old. And um, bedding in players like that, as as happened at Spurs last season, is very difficult. Now Brendan Rodgers makes a great thing of how complicated his systems are, and the fact that players can switch tactics at the drop of a hat and things like that. Integrating seven, six, seven players into that would seem to be would seem to me to be very difficult. Now I don't think many people are suggesting that Liverpool are nailed on for the title this season after going on going so close last season. But I think it would be a disappointment for them not to be in the hunt. Uh, but I do think without Suarez, that's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, that's, that's an absolutely facile statement, but it, it is true. Yeah, it depends how they how they go about replacing him. And it, uh, it seems to be a strange policy so far. We'll leave it there. John Brew and great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. What about that point by John there? Ken Lambert as an entity is all good, but not necessarily an inspirational signing. When you replace Superman with, you know, Clark Kent. Although Clark Kent actually is Superman. It's not a good comparison. I mean, Superman was just a, you know, a good cop. An ordinary, an ordinary Superman. Uh, New York cop. Yeah. Um, not Gotham City, whatever the city is called. Uh, but, you know, the kind of policeman who, who is, is, you know, liquidated by the villain in the first third of the movie. That's unfortunately the situation that we'll have with the Suarez-Lambert. If you've been out of the loop the last couple of weeks, we've done a few in-depth interviews with personalities such as Michael Parkinson, who talked about his friendship with Arthur Hopcraft on our programme last week, who was author of The Football Man, as well as Parkinson's own football writing career going back to the 1950s in Barnsley. You can check out that one or any of the others on irishtimes.com forward slash secondcaptains, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on the Podcast Republic app, if you're on Android. Thanks very much for listening to today's show. Uh, great to chat to you. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ken. Thanks very Thank much, you, Ken. Ron. Thank you, Kieran. And again, thanks for listening. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.